Well, please turn with me in our Bibles uh, this evening to the book of Psalms and turning to Psalm 130. Psalm 130, and you'll find this on page 518 in the church Bibles. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. We have been uh, looking at this group of psalms uh, in our evenings together, and we have been highlighting that these psalms form a collection of songs known as the psalms or the songs of ascents. Uh, Each one of these 15 psalms has that same heading of a song of ascents. And we have been highlighting that most likely at some point these psalms were gathered together and were used as the people made their pilgrimage towards Jerusalem. Uh, It was incorporated into the people's journey, their pilgrimage, uh, during one of the the feasts of the Old Covenant period. And we've been highlighting that these are appropriate, not just as the people made their way to Jerusalem, but that these psalms have a breadth to them. They have a, a depth to them that is appropriate for the journey of a life of faith. But this evening, as we're coming to Psalm 130, Uh, we are truly coming to a song of ascents. Meaning by that, we're not just simply thinking about the journey towards Jerusalem, making reference to Jerusalem. Like other Psalms where it says, I was was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Uh, It's not just thinking about coming in the the presence of God and recognizing uh, the privilege that exists. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel now say, if the Lord had not been on our side, we would have been swallowed up. As we come to this psalm this evening, Psalm 130, it is a song of a sense of the soul. This is a psalm that is really about climbing from the depths to the heights. It is one of moving from a low position upwards to a confident position of hope. And so we really want to see it as ascending of the soul. Uh, the, the individual, the psalmist, the believer here is talking about how a person moves that experience of moving from the pits of despair, as it were, all the way to the heights of confidence. And we see that all being jam-packed in this one psalm. And so this evening, as we're turning to the psalm, we really want to see it as a psalm of hope. 
uh, hope in God. And because there is forgiveness with the Lord, we are to be people who hope in the Lord. We are to be people who live with a confidence in God because there is forgiveness with him. And we want to look at this psalm really by following this journey, this ascent of the psalmist. And we want to break it into those four parts, those four stanzas of the psalm itself. We want to think about the cry. We want to think about the confession. We want to think about the confidence. And then finally, we want to think about the counsel. Well, first, the psalm begins with a cry. It says there in verse 1, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Uh, it begins with a point of distress. Uh, there is uh, an, an expressed distress, both in terms of the imagery of the psalmist, but also in terms of the language. It begins with the imagery from out of the depths. That's not a very common uh, phrase in the Psalter. Uh, you don't see often that expression emerge where someone speaks about being in the depths. But where you do see it in the scriptures, it is the imagery of being in the depths of the sea, uh, of being in a very dangerous, a very troubling situation, a life-threatening situation. Uh, what would be somewhat equivalent or close in our own languages is that people would talk about being in deep waters. If you're in deep waters, you're recognizing, you're saying to someone that things aren't good right now. Uh, I'm in trouble. Well, here's the psalmist talking about a very distressful situation by using that imagery of being in a very low, dangerous situation. It is from the depths that he begins. But his desperate situation is not just from uh, the imagery of being in the depths of the sea, but it's also articulated in the language that he uses. He says, from the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Uh, this, is, this is an expression of uh, great desperation that is being made to the Lord. But his cry is being directed unto the Lord. And it doesn't even tell us there in this opening what exactly it is that he is uh, distressed about. We might think that he's talking about some external threat, something that's going on around him. There's some enemy, perhaps, that is coming against him. Something is threatening his life, perhaps. But it's only as we move along with the psalmist that we begin to understand what it is that he's crying out about. And it's not about anything going on around him. It's not an external threat, in other words, but rather an internal recognition uh, of himself. And so this cry from the depths uh, quickly moves on uh, to a confession. There in verses 3 and 4, he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? It is a confession of sin. There are different words in the Bible uh, to describe sin. In the Old Testament, for instance, you find words like sin itself. Uh, sin has the idea of missing the target, of, of not uh, reaching the target. There's other words, though, too. Uh, there is the language of transgression. When you hear the language of transgression, you are thinking in the idea of crossing a boundary line. Uh, you're crossing over something that God has decreed as good versus wrong or evil. 
And so to transgress has the idea of violating God's will, uh, of rebelling against God's commands. But there's another word that the scriptures often use to describe sin, and it's the word here. It's the word iniquity. The word iniquity means to bend. It means to twist. It means to be distorted. We might like some things that are bent, some things that are twisted. Uh, sometimes people uh, sell lollipops or, uh, or candy and it'll have a bend to it or it'll have a twist to it. But when something is intended to be straight, we want it to be straight. If someone is going to build with wooden nails, they want those nails to be straight. You don't want to work with a bent nail. If you're trying to get into your house, and you use your key to unlock the door, you don't want a bent key because that bent key is not going to get into the mechanism. It's not going to be able to function as it's supposed to, to unlock the gears so that the lock uh, turns. You're not going to be able to get into the house with a bent key. And so what you need is a straight key, a key that is able to function according to its purpose in order to achieve its function. The psalmist here is saying that he's recognizing something about himself. He's recognizing that he's a sinner. But it's not simply an acknowledgement of sin. Rather, it is an acknowledgement of something about him. That he is bent. That he is twisted and distorted. That he's not simply acknowledging that he's not perfect, but rather he is realizing there's something about me that leads me into doing things that are wrong. And so here is this confession that is much deeper than simply acknowledging he's not perfect. It's the fact that as he uh, considers himself, it uncovers something about him that disturbs him. He has committed sin because he is twisted. He puts himself before others because he is bent in on himself. That is part of our sinful nature. Instead of being straight and aligned with God, we are bent like a nail or like a bent key and we don't function as we're supposed to. Instead, we bring everything back in on ourselves that we can speak in a way that is twisted for our own betterment. We can manipulate things because we're not concerned about truth, but we're concerned about ourselves. We can act in a way that is really putting ourselves at the center of all things rather than recognizing God's will or about the needs and the cares of other people. There's something twisted about that, that we'll use speech not to build up but really to mislead others. That we will use our ability to act, not to care for others, but really to serve our own interests. And so when the psalmist begins here with this confession, as he's confessing his sins, recognize he's not simply saying nobody's perfect. He's way beyond that. He's saying, what I am is twisted. What I am 
has been bent away from what I should be. God made man upright, but we have sought out many devious turns. We have become bent. Our will is on ourselves instead of functioning to the glory of God for the upbuilding of our neighbors. His confession then uh, is really being formed in the, in the form of a question. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? He's asking that question not because he doesn't know. He's asking that question because the answer is obvious. There was a 20th century evangelist, a man named Francis Schaeffer. He lived in Switzerland. And Schaefer used to say, imagine if someone tied a device around your neck or placed it on your head and it could record everything that you said. Or if we think about it further, every thought that we entertain and harbor. Everything that we mutter under our breath when someone says something we don't like or when someone turns their back. If all of that was recorded and then played back, how much would we have to be ashamed of or how much would we be convicted about later that we actually said those things about other people or we harbored those thoughts towards others? In other words, what the psalmist here is saying, if, if you, O oh Lord, would mark these things, paying careful attention, exercised great care in these things, who could stand? If someone recorded all of that. You think of how much trouble people get into just with what they type on the internet, stored on the internet, accessible to be used against them later on to their own regret. If people are evaluating and bringing these things before us, how, who would stand? There's lots to find fault in, in ourselves and in one another. And the psalmist asks this question, because the answer is obvious. None of us would stand. But when the psalmist asks that question, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, who could stand? The point he's driving at is, is that God does mark iniquity. You turn to Psalm 90, and it tells us uh, there in Psalm 90 that uh, God, it says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. God knows all that we are about. He knows the words that are on our lips before we utter them. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. And so as the psalmist is really troubled, as he's in this depth of desperation, it's because of what he has uncovered about himself. There's something distorted about me. I have not just done what is wrong, but I have done wrong because I am sinful by nature. And so he is confessing this uh, before the Lord. None of us would uh, be able to stand. That's a hard saying for many people. Perhaps it's a hard saying for you this evening. To think that your track record is not enough to save you. It's only enough to condemn you. That your efforts can't make you right before God. Because by nature... You're bent. You're not what you're supposed to be. You have sought out many devious ways because we're not inclined, we're not aligned with God's will. And that reality has 
troubled this man to the point of confessing his sins. It is this confession, though, that goes beyond acknowledgement to uh, really a brokenness. It is a broken spirit where stubbornness and pride are removed and where one is troubled about their sin. That's what confessing our sins is about. It's like what Jesus said in his parable about the tax collector. You remember how there was the Pharisee who went to the temple and he prayed about all the good things he had done. And then Jesus said there was a tax collector, someone who took advantage of other people to enrich himself, someone who lived uh, for his own comforts at the expense of others. But that tax collector, when he came into the temple, the place of meeting with his God, the place where atonement was to be pictured for the people, the tax collector would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but instead beat upon his, je- uh, his chest, saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's confessing sins. It acknowledges wrong but it's also bothered by the wrong that we have done. And so here is this confession that emerges in this psalm. We're starting to understand why it is that he was crying out to God. When he cries out to God, you notice there uh, uh, in verse 2, he says, let your ears be attentive. That language of being attentive is also the idea of exercising great care. Just as God exercises great care over our lives, knowing the sins that we have committed, now the psalmist is saying, exercise great care over my situation, over my pleas for mercy. So he confesses his sins, but he also moves on to confessing his understanding of God's forgiveness. You see that in verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. He is honest about his condition, but he's also clear about his source of hope. How does he get to that conclusion? It's not simply based on how his life is going. It's not simply life is going well, so God must be pleased with me. His conclusion that there is forgiveness with God is based on what God has revealed to him. God has spoken in his word and it's in his word that he trusts my soul waits and in his word i hope god had revealed himself as a god who is gracious and merciful the lord revealed himself to moses as the lord god merciful and gracious long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin That's how God revealed himself, as a God who forgives sin. But that's also what God promised, that he would pardon sins. And that's what God pictured through the temple sacrifices when the people came to Jerusalem. This morning we sang from Psalm 103. And in Psalm 103, it says, as far as the east is from the west, and you remember we were talking about the scapegoat going out into the wilderness. The people were actually seeing the gospel pictured for them. God takes away their sins. And so they were to understand, this is what God is promising. I have a real problem, but God has promised a real solution. He will take away my sins. He will forgive me. 
He has pledged that. He has revealed that about himself. And so in that they hoped. But we were reading in Hebrews, and Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sins. That's why they were repeated every year. It was a reminder. It was a picture. But it didn't actually accomplish salvation. But it was pointing forward to what Jesus would do. So Hebrews says, at the end of the ages, Christ came into this world and put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's what Jesus does that brings pardon for sin. It's what Christ does that brings forgiveness of sins. But we're beginning to see this movement in the psalmist. From a beginning of uh, distress, from the depths I cry to you, O God, be attentive to my pleas, to an acknowledgement of what his problem is. I'm twisted, but with you there is forgiveness. There's this confession about himself, but also a confession about God. There's a movement then, not just to uh, acknowledging something of himself, but of his God as well. And you notice how he moves on there in verse 4. He says, for with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That may not be where we think he was going to go next. But that is, the, that is the recurring description in the scriptures. The fear of the Lord is the result of knowing God's mercy. The fear of the Lord, we've said before, is really to be translated as a reverence for God. To, to be gripped by the awesomeness of God and to be committed to him as a result. It's not just an Old Testament idea. It's woven throughout the New Testament as well. The Apostle Peter, for instance, would say, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Philippians 2 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. In 2 Corinthians, he says, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. There is this dominant characteristic of God-centeredness that happens when a person knows the forgiveness of their sins. And the scriptures call that the fear of the Lord. God becomes a priority instead of just a supplement to their life. No longer on the periphery, they are God-centered. And this is really one of the marks of a genuine believer. How does one know when they have been forgiven of their sins? How does one know what it means to be born of the Spirit? The work of the Spirit is to produce a conviction over sin, a humility, a humbling of themselves before God, but also it will bring devotion of heart. They will be committed to the Lord. And you see that coming out in the psalmist as well. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That is the language of commitment and of devotion to God. 
So there is the cry from the depths. There is the confession that he has sinned. He is marked by iniquities, but there's also the confession of forgiveness. But then he goes on in the third stanza to talk about confidence. He says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. You think about a watchman. A watchman, whether in the temple precepts, uh, precepts or whether it is a watchman on the city tower. A watchman keeps watch while danger looms in the darkness of the night. Over the city, a watchman is on, uh, on the tower looking out to see whether or not the enemy is approaching, whether there is a threat. And the watchman stands post, waiting, longing for the morning to come, when the danger's over, when they're safe. And so a watchman is just waiting for that to arrive. And now the psalmist is saying that's, the, that's actually the longing that captures the life of the believer. They are, they are looking forward now to the realization of God's promises, of God's purposes. They are, they are anticipating. That's, that's the key to the whole image, isn't it? A watchman waits for the morning, but... The morning always comes. They're waiting for something that is sure. And now the psalmist is saying, I wait for the Lord with confidence, knowing it is going to come. Again, throughout these psalms, we've been highlighting how they, they are really entertaining and reflecting on what is the idea, what does it mean to be blessed? The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious unto you. What does, that, what does that mean? And here the psalmist is saying, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord's grace being realized, his favor upon you. That's what God has promised to his people. To those who humble themselves, who seek the Lord who turn to the Lord, he will forgive them and pardon their sins. And now the believer is one who's marked by an expectation. He's marked by a confidence on the basis of God's word that God will accomplish all that he has decreed. His hope is squarely based on the integrity of God's word. And so he acts, he uh, takes God's word and acts on the basis of it. He longs for when sin will be no more when things are set right. And so again, you see him climbing. He's no longer in the depths. He's faced his sin, but he's not crushed by it. What are you doing with your own sin this evening? Are you ignoring sin in your own life, minimizing it? It's not a big deal. Nobody's perfect. Are you, are you suppressing it as though it's not there at all? Because if you do address it, you don't know how to respond to it. How many people go through life not facing their sin because they don't know what to do with it? And here in this psalm, we see the psalmist moving from the depths and able to face 
his sin because he knows something about God. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And so he responds with hope, but he is able to move upwards in confidence. He's able to move upwards in faith. And so he moves from the depths. He climbs up to a confession. He climbs up further with confidence. And he's able to ultimately end uh, with this counsel in verses 7 and 8. The psalm ends uh, by uh, counseling his hearers. He says, O Israel, that is, O people, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption. Notice there he gives two reasons why they are to hope in the Lord. The first is, is that there is steadfast love with God. That word steadfast love is that word covenant. It's the idea that God is a God who is faithful to his promises. He is faithful and he will do what he has purposed. God has said that he will pardon sin. That's what the sacrificial lamb was about. That's what the scapegoat was about. That's what the blood sacrifice was about. God has promised you that he will cleanse you of your sins. And so here is this promise, as it says in the scriptures, there will come a point, as we were reading in Hebrews, that God says, I will write my law in your hearts and I will pardon your sins. I will forgive your iniquities. So why should we hope in God? Because God has bound himself on oath, on a covenant, to forgive sinners who trust in him. But then the second aspect to his reasoning there is is because with him there is plentiful redemption. That God is a God who will redeem his people. The language of redeeming is to transfer one from one state to another. From a state of imprisonment to a state of liberty. That he will deliver them from their sin and bring them into his kingdom of righteousness. But notice here that the language is not just that he will redeem them but that with him there is plentiful redemption. That language of plentiful is a word that can mean plentiful in in terms of quantity or in terms of quality. Uh, Much like how we might speak of something being rich. A person can be rich in number, but they can also have a richness in terms of quality. Something can be rich to the taste. And here it speaks about God's redemption as something abundant, something exceedingly great. It is a great redemption that he brings. And it's true in both respects. Because the redemption that Christ provides is a redemption from all our wickedness. The the work of redemption is sufficient to save all who trust in him in repentance and in faith. And his work of redemption is precious because it perfectly suits our needs. Christ offers salvation not from 95% of our sins, but from all our sins. He will redeem his people from their sins. And so we have a savior here that we should hope in because God has provided it according to his faithful word. And the Savior that he has provided is perfect. He meets our need. He covers all our sins if we trust in him. And we can live with the hope that he brings. Have you put your trust in God? Have you put your hope 
in God. If you have, then let's live as confident people. Let's counsel one another in God's truth that we would live through this life marked by confidence. That's the ascent of the soul. Not to remain in the depths of despair because we're sinners, but to be able to respond to our sin, to face it by turning to the Lord for mercy because of what we know about God, what God has shown us in Jesus Christ, and to live confident on that basis. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love and perfect redemption. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would bless us as we think over this psalm. Help us, Lord, to realize how this psalm is meant to uh, teach and to lead uh, all of us in responding to sin, uh, that we would not be left in a state of uh, distress, unknowing uh, what to do about our, our own guilt, but that we would be able to live confident in your mercy that we would be people who put our hope in you ultimately to bring to pass all your promises in Christ Jesus and knowing that Christ is suitable uh, for all of us to cover all our needs. So bless us, we pray, and go before us. In Jesus' name, amen.